Can you think of that one thing, uh, maybe a couple things, I, think I thought of a couple, a couple of things that you've seen a million times, something very common, uh, and you look at it and you're like, I, I wonder what that's for. I mean, something that, that you look at, it's in your house, it's in your car, uh, and you've never really had to use it, and you really don't understand why it's there, but you always notice it. Uh, for example, uh, your margins in your notebook. You ever really wondered, like, why are there such wide margins in my notebook? If I could just move those margins out, I'd have a lot more room to write, and I'd save money uh, in about 50 years. I'd probably save 20 bucks on, uh, on my notebooks. Well, did you know that those wide margins on your notebooks were there? Because a long, long time ago, uh, mice used to live with people. And these mice liked paper a whole, whole lot. And so to keep people's very precious writing uh, protected, in these notebooks they created margins, so the mice, when they ate those margins, they could eat the paper, but they would actually never eat the actual writing and notes of the people. Did you know that? Isn't that interesting? We all write on paper. How many of you wrote on paper this week? And you have margins, and you didn't even know what they were there for. What about if you were blue jeans. I don't wear blue jeans, I wear pants. Uh, but if you wear blue jeans, you ever notice that pocket, that little ba baby pocket uh, that most of you from the South, you just put a little pocket knife in there? Uh, and you're like, I guess that's what, I guess I actually do have one. I do have one right here. And, I, you know, and you're just like, okay, that's nice. It's fashionable, I guess, but no one really ever uses it. Did you know when they invented blue jeans, when they invented these pants, uh, they put this little pocket on here because lots of people had something called a pocket watch back then, and it was perfect size for them to slip their little pocket watch right there in the front of your pocket. How many of you carry around your pocket watch nowadays? You don't, right? Some of you, one of us. But you always wonder, like, there's all these little things in our lives that we just have laying around, and there's, there's a lot more. I go on and on and on about There's just lots of little things in our lives that we have, and we just don't give a second thought to. Uh, and there's a lot of things maybe in the world that really doesn't matter if we give a lot of thought to. But there are other things that matter a whole lot that we must think about that sometimes we don't really recognize. Uh, for instance, uh, a lot of you in here, you ever wonder why there's so many churches? Like, what is a church? Like, what's significant about a church? A lot of you, when you, walk, when you drive around New Braunfels especially, you'll see 30, 40, 50, 60 churches. Uh, and if you don't really understand why the church exists or what the church even is, you're going to have a lot of misunderstandings about the existence of the church. Uh, some of you may think that the church is uh, just a social gathering of people who kind of share some common beliefs. Or uh, some of you say, well, some people like to go to the Lions Club. Some people like to be a part of the Lodge. I like to be a part of the church. As long as people can go find that place in society that kind of makes them feel like they belong uh, then that's good for them, you know. And that's also another reason why people say things like, why do we need more churches, right? Why does the city need more churches? You know, because you, you might say, you know, the school, or the school, the, the, the town doesn't need more lodges, the town doesn't need more uh, snap shops, the town doesn't need more Lions Clubs. There, there's, there's one, and if people want to go to it, they know where it's at. Well, if you think that way, you could have a really gross misrepresentation of what the church really really is. Now, you see, there's a problem because there may be dozens of things that we never need to know why they exist. Uh, but misunderstanding the purpose of the church would be a monumental failure for anyone who calls themselves a Christian. As a matter of fact, Christians must recognize the magnitude of the person and work of Jesus Christ and what exactly that he did to establish the church to create it and to purpose it for himself. And what we have to understand here this morning, and the church at large all over the world has to understand, is why exactly are we here and what in the world are we waiting for? You see, there's an understanding that we must have as Christians of what the church is and what is our responsibility now that we're here. You see, last week we, we started this series of the exalted Christ, and we talked about Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, this morning, Paul, as he goes into the uh, verses 18 through 20 through Colossians chapter 1, and if you're not there, go ahead and turn open there in your Bibles or your tablet, or if you didn't bring any of that stuff, well, good news, we have note sheets, and the verses are right there on the right-hand corner, so you're not getting out of it that easy, okay? 
But turn there to Colossians 1, 18-20, because in the next couple of verses, these next three verses, Paul talks about the implication of Jesus' lordship when it comes to his ability to save. Okay? When we talk about Christ's ability to save, we talked last week about the fact that Jesus can save because of who he is. Right? Since Jesus is Lord, therefore he can save. Okay? And this week, Paul is, uh, is talking all about the, the ability of Christ to save and to purpose a people for his possession, for his good pleasure. And when we consider all the things that Christ is in charge of, the Apostle Paul does this one thing. He hones in on one area that is specific for you and I to focus on this morning. And that is the importance of Christ in all creation, and specifically in His new creation. You know, out of all creation, Christ has created all things. We learned about that last week. But did you know that Christ only has one thing that is the new creation? You know what that is? The church. And so out of all the things that Christ has done and all the things that Christ will do, there is something that exists right now on earth that is part of the new creation that Christ will come redeem and take with him when he restores all creation and he renews all creation. But there is already something that exists today that is already a part of that new creation. And so many of us, we pass so many church buildings and we, we don't give it a second thought. But when we look at Scripture and understand the purpose of the church, we realize that this church is already a new creation that will be fulfilled and will culminate in Christ redeeming all creation. And so for you and I to, you know, smug at all the churches in town or, or not even think twice about, you know, what is even a church, we miss the entire plan of God in all of history that he has made a new creation a small part, what we call the first fruits, the beginning of this new creation that he's going to bring to fulfillment. And so the beauty about the church and all these wonderful church buildings is instead of people saying things like, man, I don't know why there's so many churches, it should actually beg another question. Why are there so many churches? And what are these churches doing here? Well, these churches, if they are the church of Christ, if they are full of redeemed people that have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, they're waiting for something. They're waiting for the redemption of all creation. And that's what Paul discusses when he goes through Colossians 1, 18 through 20. And I want you to follow along with me as we go through uh, these three verses. And start with me in the beginning of verse 18. Look at it with me. And it says here, after it is just said that Jesus Christ is, is in all, all things are through him. He has created all things for himself and by him. He sustains all things by the word of his power. I want you, right, we just talked about the whole universe last week, didn't we? And I want you to look and see how significant it is that the next phrase that Paul uses says, and he's the head of the body, the church. Think about that. He's not the head of the body of Rome, right? He's not the head of the body of the United States of America, right? He's not the head uh, of the, the Republican Party, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that right after those few verses where it talked about Jesus was Lord over all the universe and all creation, there are so many things that Paul could have said. And he's also the head of this other thing that's pretty important that you guys kind of look up to. That he said the church. There's something very significant when Paul leads after Jesus is Lord of all, then he says he's also the head of the body, the church. Now, there's a lot of words in there that I think we should pay attention to. And the first one is this, that he is the head. What does that mean? Well, head means authority. You know, if you have a head of a school, that means they are the authority over the school, right? If you have a head, we have headship, which just means it's the authority. Uh, in Scripture, we see that, that in, in the house, we have the male who's the head of his house. The head means the authority over his house to lead his home and steward his home to please the Lord, okay? Uh, and what we understand is when we have the head of the body, we understand the body is where uh, the head is, gives the body direction, right? The body gets its direction from the head. Uh, for example, if you were to cut your head off, what is your body going to do? Nothing. If you were to cut your hand off, what's your body going to do? Everything with the other hand, right? You cut your foot off, what's going to happen? Well, your mind, your, your head's going to tell you you're going to hop on one foot, Okay. The point about this is you can lose all other extremities in your body and still function. Now, there's a lesson here for the church that I may go off on just for a half of a second. Uh, we realize that when it comes to functioning as a gospel-driven church, when it comes to function as, as, an, as any church that is truly the church of God, uh, that church can function no matter how many extremities are cut off if it always looks at Christ the head, right? And what I mean by this is, is this, that as long as a church focuses on Christ... 
You can go through a lot of pains and a lot of trials and a lot of problems, but as long as a church can keep its eyes on Christ, that church is going to function. Now, you may have lost a pinky, a family may have left the church, a church might have gotten a disagreement, and they handled it wrongly, and they cut off their right arm, so to speak, and that church is going to be limping around, and it's not going to look like the the, the beautiful church that God had called it to, but as long as that church would focus on Christ, that church is going to be productive, and it's still going to work. Maybe working with a limp, but it's going to work. But it's like so many churches, instead what they do is they cut off the head. Right. Well, as long as everybody in this room is on the same page, as long as we're okay, I think our church is going to be fine. This Jesus thing, we can figure that out later. This giving our lives to Christ, Him being the Lord of our lives, we can figure that out later. And so what we do is we sever the head and we say, yeah, this Jesus thing we'll figure out. But is everybody here okay with what we believe? Are we all okay? Are we all on the same page? As long as we're not in disagreement, I think our, our organization is going to keep making it. Well, that would be equivalent to cutting off the head. Right? I don't go to the authority to make the decisions for the body. The body's trying to make the decisions for the head. What if you gave your right hand all of the authority to make the decisions in your life? You'd be pretty pitiful, wouldn't you? You'd end up in a lot of bad places if your right hand was making decisions. At the very least, you wouldn't be doing anything because your hand is incapable of making decisions. Okay, in the same way, as long as we, as a church, are keeping the head where it belongs, that is Christ, right, who's head of the universe, and of course he's head of the church, as long as we keep focused on him and what he is doing and what he's calling us to do as a church, even though the world doesn't agree with it, even though people in the church may not agree with it, we're going to survive and we're going to exist and we're going to be fruitful for the Lord because we're focusing on the authority of the church, and that is Christ the head. Now, what does it mean when Paul uses the word church? What does the word church mean? You ever wonder about that? Like, why, why church? What, what does that word even mean? Well, it comes from a couple of Greek words, and it, it means this. It comes from two Greek words, ek, which ek, you say that, you say that in its original language, you seem like you're spitting, ek, ek means uh, out or out of. And so you have ek and you have klesia, which comes from the Greek word kaleo, which means called. And so when you put ek, klesia together, you have the called out. And and what this means is the church is those who have been called out by Jesus Christ. We just read a couple of weeks ago about Jesus calling us out or transferring us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And to to say that we are Christians who are called out, which means we have been called out of our sin, right? We've been called out of the darkness and we've been called into the light. And it is Jesus making that transition in our life that makes us the called out people, right? The called out people aren't just people who show up on Sundays, right? If you just show up here and you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, you may go to the ecclesia, but you are not the ecclesia, right? You have to have repented of your sins, turned away from a life lived for yourself, and trust in Jesus Christ as both your Lord and your Savior. Then you are Ecclesia, you are a called out one. You see, and so when, when uh, Paul is talking about here that, that Christ is the head of all those people who are called out, that means if you call yourself a Christian, like, there is no other option than you to be a part of the church, right? And this is always the argument that people give me all the time. Well, you know, I, I, I'm a Christian, but I just don't love the church. It's like, that doesn't make sense. Like, you are the church, you're the Ecclesia because you're a called out one. Right? And if you can't get along with all the people that God has called out, you have to question, are you called out? Because we have so many people in the world who are called out, but yet we don't want to be a part of what God is doing in the church. And there is no place for that in, in the Christian faith. The Christian faith is a communal faith. He's called you out, he's called me out, and he's called us out together. And if we are this entity that Christ has founded, and he has purposed, and he's coming back for, we should probably be doing this life together, because we're the only part of all creation that is already the new creation. You ever thought about that? And so the only other option is you're over there uh, meddling around in the old creation, the creation that's going to pass away. The only creation that exists that will not pass away, that will be, and always will be from now until eternity, is the church. So if there's any one thing that you should be spending more of your time with and more of your effort on and more of your finances towards, it's to that one thing that is already the new creation, and it's called the church, the ecclesia, those who have been called out. As a matter of fact, Jesus uh, told Peter, he said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. That is Jesus founding the church. At that moment, Jesus founded the church, commissioned the apostles uh, at his death, at his resurrection. In Acts, we see him pouring out the Spirit on the apostles, and there you see the church in the New Testament. uh, You see the fruition of that, the first fruits of that church. And now, thousands and thousands of years later, we now have that same movement still happening. 
We are the same church that they founded in the book of Acts. We're the same church that Jesus was talking about when he looked at Peter and says, on this foundation I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Well, friends, that's the same church that you and I exist in right now if you are a Christian, if you've repented of your sins and you've trusted in Christ. Uh, this is what uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians to the church in Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And in that newness, Christ is the head of the church. So if you're a Christian in here, you claim to be a Christian, it's time for you to come to this conclusion. Either I said I'm a Christian and I'm really not, and in that case, kind of the things I've been believing, that I can kind of live for myself, Jesus really isn't my Lord, he's great for people who want him, uh, but at the same time, if you are a Christian, and you really are a Christian, you've got to understand that Jesus is the Lord of both the universe and the head and the authority in the church. And so when it comes to this, the decisions that you and I make, when it comes to the decision our church makes, it's always going to be founded on the authority of Christ and his word. Uh, and there's a lot more implications, but I tell you to put it this way on point number one on your outline, is you need to take serious your participation in Christ's church. And, and I say that this way because I want you to understand that we are the only thing that is the new creation. Anything and everything else that you are investing your time in is going to pass away. You do realize that. Every single thing that you invest your money in, that you invest your time in, that you invest your family in, is going to pass away. There is only one thing that isn't going to pass away, and it's going to be the church. And all those things that you have invested in the church, right? When you invest your finances, you want to invest in things that are going to have a good return in their investment. Well, there is only one thing that is going to have an investment that goes after this life, and it is the church. It is what you have done in the church, right? Not in this building, right? Not even at our new building at 2415 Lifehouse Industrial Drive that we're renovating. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in the lives of the people in this church. And you're like, I really, I get what you're saying, but I don't really understand why you're saying it. Well, uh, let's put it this way. There is a place that you do take your participation seriously, and it's called your marriage, right? And I want you to turn to Ephesians 5 for me real quick. Ephesians 5 in your Bible. Turn to Ephesians 5. We'll start in verse 22. Right. We, in a society, even in a secular society, that uh, they still respect marriage. Marriage isn't held in too much high esteem in our culture anymore, but for the general population, they still look at marriage as an institution that should be protected. Uh, it's an institution where two committed people, once they make that commitment, have to live with each other in a way where they're committed. We still at least hold that a little bit of a thin, fine representation uh, culturally of what a marriage is. Uh, and this is what Paul says about the church, about the church uh, in Ephesians 5, 20, verse 22. I want you to listen to this. Follow along with me. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You're like, what does this even have to do with the church? Well, hold tight. Uh, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. So we already see this already, the headship of Christ over the church, the headship of this husband to the, uh, to the wife in the home. Uh, and it says that Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So we already see this dichotomy. It's like, listen, uh, your marriage isn't, uh, if you didn't think that marriage was for the gospel, your mind is completely blown right now. Because the reason that marriage exists, the reason that, that God created marriage was to reflect something about his nature. Okay, was to reflect something about himself. And in, in the future, with Christ knowing everything that was ever going to happen, he created marriage to reflect the very relationship between Christ and his church. And so without you even realizing it, Christ being Lord of all things, right? Christ being Lord of your marriage fashions your marriage to reflect something about him and his saving work for the church. And some of you in here didn't, wouldn't even know, didn't even know that. But even your marriage lived outside of the obedience of Christ has still been fashioned to give people an understanding to think, huh, I wonder what this represents. And although like my front pocket for my pocket watch and the margins in my paper, uh, you didn't really know what it was there for, but you're doing it anyway, that's a lot of marriage in our society. But marriage reflects and points something out about God and about the church. And it says in verse 24, excuse me, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present to the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Do you already see the, the, the reflections of, uh, of Paul talking about marriage right here in Ephesians, in Ephesians 5 and uh, Colossians 1.18? The Christ is the head of the body. The, the Christ is leading the church. That the husband should lead his wife. That the, that the church should submit to uh, Christ. Also, the wife should submit to their husbands. Uh, the, uh, the, the Jesus loves uh, the church, right? Husbands, love your wives. You see all of this, this entanglement of what marriage ought to look like to reflect uh, the gospel. You say, what does this have to do? What I'm saying here is you've got to understand there's a responsibility in marriage. And most of you will take that seriously. There's a responsibility, you know, when I get married and I put this ring on my finger, there are some requirements and some expectations for me. Some of you in here won't get married because you know that's true. And what I'm saying is you should also be taking your participation in Christ's church seriously because when Christ, when, when Christ died for you, and if you repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You are married, you are engaged, you have been given over to Christ, and there is a responsibility, and you ought to take that responsibility serious. That's what, if we keep going here in uh, verse uh, 31. In Ephesians 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So you thought this whole time we were talking about marriage in some weird kind of way that we tried to make it Christian. And actually, as a matter of fact, no, when we talk about marriage, we're talking about Christ and the church. And Paul's saying that. The mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. All those things and all those realities and commitments and participation that you have in marriage ought to reflect the kind of commitment and participation you and I have in the church. And it ought to be that type of relationship. It ought to be that kind of commitment where we're saying, you know what? I am committed to the church. I am related to the church. Right? I am purposed for the church. As, when you put off all other, all other people in the world and you make a commitment to one person, you are saying, I'm committed to this person. My life is going to be completely different. I'm not interested in these people anymore. I have a commitment here in front of me. Well, friends, when you turn away from your sins and you trust in Christ, you're no longer living for the things that you have turned away from. You're now living for Christ, and Christ has founded the church. The church in Scripture is the bride of Christ, and therefore, since we are the bride of Christ, we're living in that relationship with Christ, and we're living that way, and we're participating within that relationship that Christ has with his body. And so again, when we go back to the beginning of this, we say, why does a church exist? We exist to be in a relationship with Christ together as a church, and we have to take seriously what that means in our society. We have to take seriously what that means according to Scripture and why that's so significant for you and I. And there's a lot of reasons why you should take serious your participation in Christ's church. Uh, and it can look like a couple of things. Uh, number one, you need to be going to church services, right? Uh, and and that may be for you so uh, uh, just kind of cold and kind of and, and like, oh, go to church. I've been going to church for 30 years. And uh, what I'm saying is, you can put it this way, you need to go to family meetings, okay? You're in relationship to the church. You wouldn't miss a family reunion if you're in right relationship with your family. Well, in the same way, you don't need to be missing when the family gathers on Sunday mornings at church, I uh, put it this to you this way. I, this is kind of the pattern that I've noticed in uh, in our society. Uh, students like like student ministry. They they got kids ministry, and they grow up. And when they go to start going to college, they leave the church. Uh, and then when they get married and they start having kids, you know what they do? I my, I want my kids to believe in something. I can't just have them living out there like I did for five years being hoodlums. So I'm going to go take them back to church, right? Um, and so why don't you go ahead and, I don't know, start doing that now, okay, so that you're not living like a hypocrite if you are a Christian, right, uh, and you're saying, you know what, if I want my kids to do this, I should probably be doing this, right? And that's just a really practical example of saying, you know you should be doing these things even though you don't. Uh, and so many of us don't realize the repercussions of that until our kids are 16, 17 years old, and they look at you and say, I don't really want to go to church. I don't really like this whole God thing. And you'll come to my office and talk to me like, why, why? Well, did you take it seriously? And odds are, if you were honest with yourself, you're going to say, not really, not really. And that's why I'm saying you need to take serious your participation in the family of God. And, you shouldn't, and then if you don't, you shouldn't be surprised when your kids don't. 
or your family doesn't, right? Or even when your family doesn't take you serious about what you believe, uh, because you go to family reunions and you start, you know, God, you know, and they're like, you, you haven't been to church in 10 years. Don't talk to me, Joe, about what you believe about God. You don't go to church, right? Uh, those are just very obvious uh, applications of understanding, hey, people know when you're faking it. People know when you aren't taking serious your participation in the body of Christ. Uh, other things you can do, right? be a part of a life group, right? Why, why do we make it a very serious step in our church to be a part of a life group because that's living in community. That's participating in your marriage. It'd be like you coming to me in your marriage and, uh, hey, you know, we're not very close. You know, we don't really spend a lot of time together. And I'm like, okay, uh, you know, you're married, so that's a good step. Uh, do you guys spend time together? I mean, do you guys really spend time during the week where you're like, hey, this time right here we're going to spend with each other and nothing else is going to get in the way of it? Uh, do y'all do that? And you're going to be like, not really. Only when it's convenient, but not really. And I'm like, no wonder your relationship isn't going great. Y'all don't even intentionally spend time together. And what we say at our church is, hey, uh, once a week, other than Sundays, right, you guys are going to commit to a time and a space and a place where you're going to gather together and you're going to commune with one another and you're going to spend time with one another and you're going to commit to the relational, uh, uh, the relational commitment of being a part of a small group in God's church. And so that's another way that you would take serious your participation in Christ's church. Uh, thirdly, what we say here is that saved people serve people. So if you're saved, you're part of Christ's church, you're going to serve the church. You're going to serve, right, uh, in your marriage, right? I mean, can you imagine if neither one of you served one another? If you just lived for yourself, you showed up, uh, like, like so many people do, we show up to church, we go grab a coffee, we grab a donut, we walk in here and we sit down and we drink and we munch and we, we listen to worship and we listen to the pastor, then we get up and we walk out and jump in the car, and uh, you wonder why no one in church knows you, right? And you wonder why no one in church talks to you. And then some of us live this way in our marriage, right? We get what we can get. We use our spouse for all the ways that we can. And then you come to counseling. I don't know why she didn't love me. Well, do you just grab a donut and sit down, get what you can get, and then walk out and don't talk? Then, yeah, that's probably why your marriage is that way. Okay, and so what I'm saying is if you think church is dry and non-relational and non-committal, it's probably because you're non-committal and dry and non-relational. And what that means is you need to take a look at Colossians 1.18 and think, man, if Christ uh, is really Lord over all, and the one thing he wants you to know this morning is he's also Lord of the church, and if I call myself a Christian, I need to probably take serious that thing that he's head of, and that's the church. A couple of things you can do as a tertiary note. Uh, one is the esteem the church. You want to uh, have a good marriage. You don't want an easy way to have a marriage. Esteem your spouse. Talk well about them. Speak well about them. Uh, encourage them. Edify them to build them up. That's a great way to have a good marriage. You know, that's a great way to, to have a healthy church too. And that's by saying, you know what? I'm going to talk well about the church. If you, can, if you can put all the things you've said about the church in the past six months and put them on a scale, all the good things and all the bad things, which way would your scale lean? Right? Are, are you, do you try to build up and edify the church and esteem the church? Or do you do what I'm going to tell you not to do? Don't badmouth the church. Right? Do you badmouth the church? If I, really, if I could go back into your words that you've spoken about the church in the last six months, uh, would your badmouthing the church outweigh your edifying and esteeming the church? Because if it is, you're not taking serious your participation in Christ Church. Uh, for example, if you are married in here, uh, and I walked out of these doors right here, and I started talking mess about your wife, what would you do? You'd be pretty upset, wouldn't you? You'd be pretty upset that the pastor starts talking negative about uh, your wife. Well, all I'm saying is the church is the bride of Christ, is Christ's wife, and so many of us start speaking negatively about the bride of Christ, not realizing who's the head and the authority over the church, and it's Jesus. And we should be the people who are esteeming that bride and who are looking at that bride and saying, this is a wonderful bride. Sure, uh, you know, sometimes she's got a couple extra hairs in between her eyebrows, right? Sometimes, you know, she's, you know, sometimes she smells a little bad, right? And sometimes she's got a bad attitude, but it's still the bride of Christ, right? And it's time for us to treat her that way. It's time for us to treat the church as what she is, and that is Christ's. And we need to take seriously our participation in that. So as Paul is, is transitioning into Christ's authority over all creation, he then, he then focuses in right here, and he's talking about the authority of Christ in the church, but then he's trying to zoom in a little more because he's trying to focus on one aspect of Christ's authority, and that's his work in salvation. So I want you to go to verse 18, the second part of verse 18. It says this, speaking in light of Christ's work and salvation. It says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
Well, a lot of us don't talk like that nowadays, right? There's probably not a day this week where you said, I'm the beginning, the firstborn, and so I might be preeminent. So it's going to take some time as we look in here and think, what in the world is Paul saying? Well, when he says beginning, and we've talked a little bit about this last week, but when he's talking about beginning here, he's talking about the first fruits, you know, the first fruits. It's the beginning of something that you're going to see a lot more of. Uh, For example, when I was in college, I bought 12 baby chicks, okay? I don't know why I did this. Like, I didn't have enough going on in college. I bought 12 baby chicks, and uh, I took them to my grandmother's house, and I was raising them. And, uh, you know, my hope was that all of these were hens. And, you know, if you own chicks, you don't know if they're going to be hens or roosters until they get old enough where you can tell they're hens or roosters. And so I bought 12 of them, and I'm raising them, and I'm just praying they're all hens because I wanted eggs. And uh, sure enough, it took, you know, six, eight months. I'm like, okay, these are all hens, okay? And so... At the moment that I realized these were all hens, I'm like, I cannot wait to start getting my dozen eggs a day. Like, what's a college kid going to do with a dozen eggs a day? I don't know. But here, I, I'm here, and we're right around that time for the maturation of a hen to start laying eggs. And I'd go check the, the hen house every day, and I'm like, is today the day? Nope, nope. I feed them, and I water them, and I go back at the school, and I come back the next day. Is today the day? And on and on and on, until about 11, 12 months in, I go to the hen house, and I look under that hen, and I see the first egg that these chickens have ever produced. Okay, that is the concept of a first fruit, okay? And why is that important? Because I know from that moment on, for the rest of that chicken's life, it's going to do what? It's going to lay eggs, All of those chickens are going to lay eggs from that moment on for the rest of those chickens' lives. They're going to lay eggs. And that's a first fruit. And that's what's so important for you and me to understand when it says that Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. It means that, hey, this one time in all of history, somebody is the first fruit from being firstborn from the dead. And that because they both died and were raised, right, that is the first time that is going to happen, but it sure ain't the last time that's going to happen. That is the first time it's going to happen, and now we can look forward to, for now, in the culmination of redemptive history, tons, millions of people, all the redeemed, all people are going to be raised, right? We're all going to be raised, and Jesus was just the first fruits. Now, many of you say, well, Jesus wasn't the first one that was resurrected. What about Lazarus? You know, what about all these other people that I read of in Scripture who were raised? Well, they did raise, and then what happened? They died again, okay? And so those people, although they were temporarily raised, they also died again, right? Jesus is the only person in history who died and rose and never died again. And so we see that he is both, he is the first fruit, the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. And I'm going to tell you something. There is something significant about the resurrection that transcends Easter. And, you know, it would... Uh, It would be a a sad day in the history of the church if we only talk about the resurrection once a year. It's so important for you and I to understand that our entire Christian faith rests on the resurrection, and it's not—it's not only to be talked about in April. Right? It's something that we should be celebrating every single day of our lives as Christians. You know, it's so significant. I want to flip you over uh, to uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. Right, that we have to understand that he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the beginning. And it's so important that when we see that he has been resurrected, and there's a promise in Scripture that says you need, he's not going to be the last, because there's so many people in our culture who, who don't take the resurrection serious, right? who try to tack on the resurrection uh, to Christianity later on. Like, I can be a good person. I can go to church. I can do all these things. But don't start talking to me about no resurrection, because that's just too much. Well, let me tell you what's too much. Too much is not believing in a resurrection and calling yourself Christian. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. It says this, that now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, this is, this is a, a common thought, right, back in the first century, right, even throughout history. Well, you know, I don't, want, don't talk to me about no resurrection. I mean, there was a whole sect of Jewish people that didn't believe in the resurrection, okay? And here we have verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And so if you don't believe in a resurrection from the dead, you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. And it says in verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. So I should just go sit down with you guys and we can watch TV, all right? It's preaching in vain and your faith is in vain. Everything you believe, everything you do is in vain if Christ did not raise from the dead. Verse 15, We are even found to be misrepresenting God. If there's something I don't want to do today, and I hope you never want to do, it's misrepresent who God is. 
Right? And if you, if you will preach haphazardly a resurrection from the dead and not truly believe it, then you must, at least in your own life, uh, admit that you are, trying, you are misrepresenting God because you're saying something that you truly don't believe. Now, because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Friends, the resurrection is so important that if indeed it did not happen, you're hopeless, I'm hopeless, you're in your sins, I'm in my sins, and we're in the same place uh, that we started when we were born, before we became Christians. We're all in the same spot here. So if, if the resurrection is something that you can't stand firmly on and say this happened, it's historical, it's real, and it, the, the repercussions of a resurrection is my redemption, if you can't stand on that, you aren't a Christian. Right? You can't be. It's, it's, you can't be a Christian if you don't believe in the life-saving power of the resurrection that allows you to be Christian. Right? The Christ's power being Lord over all in that resurrection, he exercised his lordship even over death, and we'll talk about it later. That is the power that saves Okay? Without that, there is power, but it doesn't save because it hasn't been exercised. Do you make, does that make sense? If it doesn't, it will in a minute. Okay? And it says this in verse 18. Follow along. We're almost finished with this verse. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That means your, 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 your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, you, if you have children who died, they've perished and there's, uh, there's no hope. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Right? Not only are we not saved, now we're the most people to be pitied. Why? Because we're living this fake life that's unreal, that has no truth tied to it. And all these people who are living life the way they want to, all these people who are living out, going out on the weekends, doing whatever they want, uh, they're the ones actually doing this thing right because there is no repercussions for their lifestyles. Now you guys are living in all these moral codes and you're doing all these things. For what reason? Well... If there is no resurrection, for no reason at all. We're all pitiful, and we're, we're all living lives that we shouldn't be living. We're the fake people. Right? That's how important the resurrection is. If it didn't happen, you're fake. If it didn't happen, I'm fake. If it didn't happen, I'm up here misrepresenting God, and my entire job and life and career is a waste. Right? I want you to think about that. Right? And every single thing that you're doing, what you're teaching your kids, is a lie. You see how significant the resurrection is? But we have good news. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Right, that, the ending, right, the verse 20. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep, right, that's just, that's, they're dead, right? They haven't taken a long nap. No, they're dead, right? And the good news is because Jesus Christ was raised, uh, we are going to be raised. Because my chickens started having eggs, I knew for the rest of my, those chickens' lives, those chickens are going to keep having eggs. And so the fact of the matter is because Jesus was raised, that is living proof that you and I are also going to be raised from the dead. That's a living proof that the resurrection is so significant for Christians because we have a hope, right? And now in, in light of the church, going back kind of the beginning of this, what's so significant about the church? Because we're going to be resurrected to new life, right? So we should be spending time with the people who are going to be resurrected to new life because they're the only ones who get it. They're the only ones who understand the struggles of this life, the struggle of sin and temptation, the, the struggle to live righteous lives, the reality of our future hope that we have in Christ Jesus. You know who doesn't understand that? The Lodge and the Lions Club and the Snapshot and all those places that are outside of, of the church. They don't understand. There may be people in there who understand it because they're part of the church. But as a whole, they don't exist for the simple understanding that Christ has been resurrected. He's called out a people for his good purpose and he's coming back to get them. That is solely belonging to the church. And it's important for you and I uh, to do, uh, I put uh, point number two, uh, to put Christ first in everything. It's important for us to put Christ first in everything because that's exactly uh, what, what Paul is telling the Colossians to do. And how do I know that? Because he uses this word here in verse, uh, in verse, the end of verse 18. Right? He's the beginning, the first form of the, of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That word in preeminent just means that he might come to have first place. If you have an NASB, it'll actually say it just like that, that Christ may come to have first place in everything. And just for you to, to, to put it into perspective, this is what this means, right? That Christ is Lord of all things. You hear last week we, we spent 55 minutes on talking about Lord, uh, Christ is Lord of all, okay? But because he died, because he was resurrected, he has now been given first place in everything. Well, how, right? Because Christ has always had dominion over all things, including sin and death, right? But in his resurrection, he has exercised his dominion over death and sin, giving him first place even over death. 
right? Death was an area that Christ had yet to exercise his dominion over, right? And so therefore, in a real sense, he wasn't first over death. And so him being crucified, buried, and then resurrection, he exercised his dominion over death. Now even death has no claim on being first over Christ. Christ flipped that over, and the very things that you and I are afraid of the most, death and the grave, Christ said, I took care of that. I am now preeminent in that. I am first in that. And the good news is since I'm first, that means you're also going to be there as well. Since I'm the first fruit of that, there's also a promise for all those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ, who follow me, who will also defeat death and sin and the grave. So that's the good news of being a Christian. And that's why it's so important for you and I to put Christ first in everything we do. It says in verse 9 that it says, For in him, he needs to be first place in everything. Why? Because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, I've had you guys circling words uh, in these verses that say all and fullness and all. And I'd have you do that here. Look over verses 18 through 20 and circle all the times that it says all or everything, or fullness. Because over and over again, I want you to understand that Paul is trying to tell the Colossians, and I'm trying to tell you, and the Lord wants to tell you this morning, that Christ is all you need. And I always hate to say all you need, because it's, to say that Christ is sufficient is still lacking, because Christ is more than sufficient. Christ is more than all you need, right? Christ is all the universe needs. He has the fullness of the universe, and guess what? He's sufficient over all things. Of course, he's sufficient over our individual lives. If he's sufficient for all things, he's sufficient for us. And if this is truly who Christ is, right, Lord of the universe, head of the church, right, firstborn from the dead, that it makes sense that we just put Christ first in everything. Because if anybody's ever done anything like that, anybody has that kind of authority, guess what I'm going to do? Put them first in my life, right? Anybody, you do that, you're number one in my life. I'm going to follow you. Because why? Because you have all the fullness of God. And because that was Christ, because that's who he is, I'm going to put him first in everything. Paul actually says that much later on in Colossians 3.17. He says, whatever you do, do in word, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So that means whatever you and I do, everything we're going to do, in word or deed, uh, in Romans, whatever we eat, whatever we drink, do it all to the glory of God. It doesn't matter what we do, right? If you hiccup, if you burp, whatever you do, just do it all for the glory of the Lord. Right? I mean, the, the point about this is there's nothing outside of the, uh, of the authority of Christ, and that means everything in your life ought to be submitted to the authority of Christ, which means everything you need to do is putting Christ first. The good news, of course, is Christ has given us a lot of ways to do that, and I'll give you a couple of the examples that he uses in Scripture. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, but I'll give you the, the Scripture references. You can jot them down real quick. Okay? Uh, Matthew 16, 24 uh, Christ says this, if you want to come after me, that means you want to put me first, basically, is what Christ is saying in Matthew 16, 24. If you want to come after me, you got to deny yourself. So like, when it comes to putting Christ first, you have, to both, you have to first say no to yourself. And that's the problem that a lot of us have these days is saying no to ourselves. Right? We, all, we, we say yes to ourselves more often than we say yes to anybody because we're selfish, we want our own way. And Christ says, listen, if you want to put me first, uh, you're going to have to deny yourself. Uh, John 14, 15. Jesus says this, if you love me, you're going to obey me. If you want to put Christ first, you're going to obey him. Right? And if, if you're going to live for him, you're going to obey him. Right? If you're going to say that you're a Christian, you're going to obey him. Right? That is, that is the, the litmus test of, of, of your true Christianity. If you are truly a Christian, if you are saved and redeemed, you're, we're going to look at your life and say, does your life bear fruit or do you obey Christ? Because if your life does not bear fruit and it has, does not have obedience to Christ tied to it, you ought to very, very much question your faith. You ought to question, am I a redeemed person if I don't deny myself, if I don't obey Christ? Because if I love him, I'm going to. Okay. Thirdly, Philippians 2.3. Right? You need to consider others as more significant than yourself, something your mom probably said to you. Right, but as Christians, it has this tied to it. You can have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying this. You can have this mind which is yours in Christ. Because Christ did it, because Christ humbled himself to be obedient even to death on a cross, you can also humble yourself and consider other people as more significant than yourself. It says that Jesus didn't even account equality with God something to be grasped. We're talking about God, Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, something to attain, something to hold on to. I mean, think about that. Jesus, fullness of God is pleased to dwell in, in him. 
And yet, he didn't lift that up and saying, well, God, I'm God too, so we're just equal here, so you go down there. I don't want to go down there. No, he did not consider that something to hold on to, something to say, no, no, I'm not going to do this. Right? But how many things in our life do we want to hold on to uh, in your marriage? I want you to think about in your marriage. We talk about marriage a lot. Because marriage is such a, a, an easy representation of how you live the rest of your life. Like, how often in marriage are you just so unwilling to let go and, and look at yourself as less significant? Like, you're, you, some of us in our marriage, we just want to spend all of our time talking about how significant I am. You should be loving me more because I'm lovable, right? I'm worthyable. You need, to make, you need to spend more time caring about me, right? Why don't you look at yourself less? And all I'm saying is, why don't we all look at ourselves as less significant than those around us. And when we do, we're going to start living by putting others first, which means that we're putting Christ first. Because Christ, that's what Christ did. And that's what we're going to do. Now, of course, you can say, well, people who aren't Christians can do that. Yeah, not very long. You show me a Christian, you show me, you show me somebody that doesn't have the power of the Spirit in their life, and tell me how long they spend uh, living for others for the reason to praise and glorify God. The answer is not very long. Okay. Uh, and fourthly, Ephesians 5, you've already, you've already written it down, Ephesians 5, 25 and verse 32. Uh, you need to love the church. If you want to put Christ first in everything, you ought to be focusing and paying attention to the thing that he gave his life up for, and that's the church. Right? And, and uh, Maybe this is the first time you ever thought about it in that way, uh, but if the church is the bride of Christ, he loves her, he cherishes her, he takes care of her, and yet you've been trying to make up excuses of why you don't want to go gather with her every week or why I don't want to give my time midweek to a life group. And all I'm saying is, is Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. And it's time for us to put that, put that first, put her first. Because that's what, exactly what Christ died for. That's who he came to redeem. And that's those of us who will be first fruits of Christ's resurrection, or will be the culmination of the first fruits of Christ's resurrection uh, in the time when Christ comes to take his church. That's who's going, right? The, my club sport team isn't going, right? My school isn't going. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that aren't going that we would rather spend our time with. We ought to be reframing our minds to start spending time with the very people who are going to be redeemed and been taking with the church. <clears throat> I'm going to simply put it this way. Like, putting Christ first in everything is just doing in your life now what Christ is going to do with everything eventually. You hear that? Like, when I put everything in my life... Uh, when I put Christ first in everything in my life, I'm just doing today what Christ is eventually going to do with all things. And I want you to look at verse 20, and it just says that in verse 20. And that through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now I want you to pay attention because there are people who give you questions about this verse. Because when you look at this verse and, and on the surface, like last week on the surface, you just, it's just hard to understand what all that meant. Here you can be, uh, you can be very... Uh, misled if you're not careful and through him to reconcile to himself all things okay does that mean that jesus is coming and it doesn't matter what we believe what we do who it is all things are going to be reconciled it means all things are going to be saved all people are going to be saved because it says right here right there look you can, you can circle it and underline it and through him he's going to reconcile all things to himself anyway if i don't do it now he's going to do it later that's okay right he's going to make everything okay and that's what you'll hear from churches and people and, and groups and society. That, hey, and that term is called universalism. Right? A universalist believes that at the end, everything's going to be okay. Christ is going to come and make everything okay. And this is a verse that they'll use to say, hey, look, there is, there's the proof that he's going to reconcile all things to himself. Whether on earth or in heaven, he's, he's, he made peace by the blood of his crosses, and he took care of it for everybody, all creation. So there's your first option, universalism. Right? Or... Is it something else? Is, is, is Paul saying something else entirely here that should actually make you and I have our eyebrows raised a little bit and make us get a little more serious about what Christ is really going to do? I like to choose number two. <clears throat> to understand what he means by reconciling all things to himself, I want you to think uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, a financial reconciliation. What is a financial reconciliation? Right. Financial reconciliation is a process that ensures that all these accounts are in agreement, right? This account, these accounts, these accounts, these are all in agreement. Well, in a way, that's exactly what Christ is going to do. He's going to come and make sure all accounts are in agreement. In agreement to what, though? Not in agreement to they're all going to be salvation. Now, when he's reconciling accounts, what he's saying here is, I'm going to make all these, recon I'm going to make all these come to uh, an agreement with what they see about me, okay? 
You say, okay, I don't know. Let's keep going. Okay. By making peace by the blood of his cross, what Christ is saying is, listen, there are two different sides of the account you can be on. Either I have paid the penalty for sin and death, and you can turn away from your sins and you can follow me, and I will pay that penalty for you, or you know that I died for your sins, and yet you did not repent of your sins and come follow me, and we're still going to reconcile that. And here's how we're going to do it, okay? We're talking about not universalism and salvation. We're talking about universalism and dominion, okay? That means this, that when Christ says that all things are going to be reconciled to himself, or when Paul says this about Christ, what he's saying this is all things have been put into proper relationship with Christ, right? And we're talking about through salvation or through his dominion, okay? And I'm going to put it to you this way. When it says that Christ is reconciling all things to himself, he's not saying all people are going to be saved. And I need you to know that today. Okay. What he's saying is, when the time comes, when Christ comes to reconcile all creation to himself, what he's saying is this, there's going to be a time where either I'm going to reconcile you to myself, or I'm going to reconcile you by putting you under subjection to me, whether you like it or not. So when Christ reconciling all creation to himself, he's saying, you're either coming with me, or you're going to bow before me. Okay, and we're all going to bow before Christ anyway, but you get the point. The point is that all things are going to be subjection under him. He's going to reconcile all things, and they're going to be put in their proper place in relationship with him. The good news is the church is in right relationship with him. So he's going to, he's going to grab us, he's going to redeem us, and we're going to go reign with him. Well, he's also going to put all other creation and all the unredeemed people and all the people who have denied him, he's going to put them in right relationship in, in regard to him. And that is, he's going to be over them. They're going to be under his subjection, and he's going to rule and to conquer, and they're going to go, and they're going to receive the wrath and the just punishment for their sin. Right? So when you see this verse, it should be a great hope for you to say, at the end of the day, even though that somebody hated me at school today, right, people were being mean to me, my boss is rude to me, you know, uh, you know, I mean, I just stumped my toe today. Right? I mean, my body, it, just, it hurts all the time. All things are going to be reconciled to God. Right? All the bad things, all the good things. Christ is going to reconcile all of them. Right? And they're all going to be put into a proper perspective and their proper relationship when it comes to who Christ is. And the good news for the church is we are in right relationship with him. And so our reconciliation is going to be a reconciliation of hope and eternal security in Christ. Right? There is no hope for the reconciliation of, 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 this, of the, the unrepentant sinners and the unredeemed creation. Right? Uh, there's a couple of verses we don't really have time for, but you can jot them down and look at them later. Romans 5, 8 through 11. And when you want to talk about peace with God through Christ, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All right, we have been justified by his blood. Uh, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? We understand the wrath of God's coming. The scripture teaches that. In verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So there's our reconciliation, right? We have peace with God. We've been reconciled. We are now in right relationship with God. Well, here's another verse I want you to pay attention to. And it's talking about the other side of the reconciled. All things will be reconciled. We have to come to that conclusion. All things are going to be reconciled, either to Christ or through Christ, right? Through Christ, we're going to be reconciled. We're going to be redeemed. Or we're going to be redeemed to, we're going to be reconciled to Christ. And it's going to look like this, Romans 2. 4 through 9. You can write that down. Romans 2, 4 through 9. It says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's for all those who say, I'll do it one day, or, you know, I just, I, you know, I've got things I want to do, and then I'll give my life to Christ. And they're saying, Do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience of God, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Like, you're just living your life for yourself, and God's given you this time to repent. And you're, and you're squandering it. You're not understanding that his patience with you is meant to lead you to repentance, not to keep you living off on your wild adventures and you living life for yourself. Uh, it says, verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. 
Those are both reconciliations you do, re- you do realize, right? He's going to reconcile you by his blood. He's going to redeem you, and you're going to be with him. Or he's going to reconcile, and he's going to put all things under his subjection, and he is going, the wrath of God is going to be poured out, uh, and there will be wrath and fury, and there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Right? And all human beings do evil, right? You do realize that. I think you can look at me in your own life and say, there's times in my life I've done evil. Well, what covers that evil? Right? The blood of the cross, and so the fact is, if the blood of the cross, if you have not said, I repent of my sins and trust in Christ and, and believe and trusted in Christ for that, then you are under the wrath of God because we all are evil. No, there is no one righteous, not even one. Uh, to give you a, a good example of this, uh, during uh, the uh, atomic bombs on Japan, right, World War II, uh, do you know before uh, the Air Force went and, and, and bombed uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they dropped the leaflets. Right? They dropped these Lamei leaflets. And what they were is they were warnings, and they dropped them all over Japan. They say, listen, we're going to attack these. We're going to bomb these cities and these cities and these cities. Get out. We don't want you to die. What we're trying to get after are the problems down there. Okay? Uh, there's bomb factories. There's military outposts. We're trying to get rid of those things. So here are these leaflets. Here are these warnings. And what I want you to do is heed them. I want you to heed them, and I want, you to, I want you to make sure that you aren't here when this happens, okay? And they did that a couple of times, and then when the time comes, you know the rest of history. Atomic bombs were dropped on Japan, and the whole goal of the U.S. Air Force was to create as little uh, unnecessary civilian casualties as possible. Well, we know that civilians died. People died. People that didn't heed the warning were, were, were killed, were bombed and were destroyed, okay? Now, the hope is, right, that the, the news of the impending doom was going to be enough to get the people out. And what was the whole reason for the bombing of Japan? For peace, right? So that peace would happen, okay? And so what I'm telling you, what I, what I want you to see here is that Christ has, has given a way out for everyone. We do know there's a time where much more worse things are going to happen than an atomic bomb is going to happen. And, and Christ came down to earth, lived the life that we couldn't live, gave us an opportunity to get out of this, right? Has given us his word, has given you preachers, and has given you churches that you pass every single day for you to wonder in your life, hmm, there's something more of this I need to know, right? Little LeMay leaflets have been dropped all over your life to give you this, this opportunity to say, you know what, there's something about to happen that I need to respond to. Right? Because at the end of the day, as bad as those bombs were, they did it for peace. Right? And sometimes bad things happen to reconcile things to peace. And what I'm saying is there's going to come a day in time where Christ is going to reconcile all things to himself, and it's going to also look like that. And the world is going to be destroyed, thus reconciling all things to peace. The redeemed are going to be with Christ, thus reconciling all things to peace. Right? Just like the atomic bombs were there to, uh, to inevitably create peace, so wrath and fury and justice will be poured out on all creation, and the end is peace. But peace has been extended to us now. If we would accept him as our Lord and Savior, if we would repent and turn away from our own sins, the very things that for the reasons that wrath and fury are coming onto the world, if we would, in our own lives, repent and trust in him, we would both be saved from the impending fury and wrath that is to come. And so what I want you to do is I need you to get your mind right when it, regarding the reconciliation of Christ. Right? It isn't that Christ is going to make everything okay, like you get to choose. It's a choice. right? And that's what we always say. It's a choice. You can choose to do it or not to do it. It's much greater than that. right? It's much bigger than that. right? If you don't choose it, you, sure you can't, but that's like looking at the LeMay leaflet and saying, ah, I'm going to stick around. Like, no, 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 no. Right? You're not going to let somebody do that, are you? Like, if you're in Japan and you're like, I get that. Hey, hey, let's go. Everybody out. Let's go. We got to get out of here. It's not, ah, you know what? If it's truth for you, it's good for you, no matter for me. No, no, no. No, this is truth for everybody, right? Impending doom, impending judgment is coming, and Christ has created a new creation, and he's going to come, and he's going to snatch away, and he's going to bring with him. That isn't a truth for me and not for you thing. That's a truth for all of us, and we all need to take seriously our, our responsibility to tell people about this. There's so much more to say. But we need to see that Christ's uh, reconciliatory work has created a people for himself, right? He's created a people for himself who are sealed for redemption at his return. And he's also condemned all of those who saw his atoning blood 
and yet neglected to submit their lives to him. Right? And that is the news, right? Because you, you don't get to see a person in, this, in, in, in New Braunfels, Texas, that doesn't in some way somehow not know about the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And so they're going to stand before God as someone who knew and yet ignored. And so let us be a church who takes seriously this idea of, of warning people, of, of gathering people, of telling the truth to people, and then helping them respond to the good news of Christ, and then bringing them into the new creation, and having us love the church and participate in the church, and putting Christ first. And point number three, to accept the urgency of Christ's reconciliation. Right? That is the goal. Is like for us as a church to participate in this work, to put Christ first in everything, and to accept the urgency of what is to come. Like, let us be a church who takes that seriously. Pray with me. God, there's so much to say about you being in control of everything, but yet you focusing in on the church, you focusing in on that you have created a new creation, and you redeem them, and you've purposed them for your good purpose. And your good purpose here is that they would be a, a beacon and a light and an example in this broken world. Not just an example of morality and, and just, you know, just overall goodness, but as an example of saying, hey, like us, you need to see your sin for what it is, and you need to turn away from it, and you need to trust in Christ who, who took your sin, who took the sin of the world and put it on the cross. And then one day, he's going to come back and he's going to reconcile all things to himself, whether through salvation or rather through judgment. God, help us be a church that really sees the implications of that and help us see that and make us put everything, put you first in everything because that's where you belong. That's how people are going to see our lives as different and that's going to be the, the light switch in so many people's lives in our city, in our community, in our families who are going to ask the question of why do you take the church seriously? Why do you put Christ first in everything? And you're going to look at them and God and, and our prayers that everybody in this church is going to say because we take serious uh, the reconciliation of Christ for all people and all things. And we see the day coming. God, help us live that out today, this week. Help us get prepared this week to even share the good news of the gospel to someone who needs the reconciliatory power of Christ our Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <music>